Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking with organizers about the craft of organizing. Today, my guest is Mia Yashitani. You know, a lot's changed in organizing over the last dozen years, but one thing hasn't, the importance of winning. The fact that we know how to win, it's a secret sauce of our craft. Take it off the table, and I believe our ranks grow even smaller. Mia Yashitani has been organizing for 25 years, winning tangible change within the world as it is, while also having an eye toward winning the world as it should be. She is the executive director of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. And since the 1990s, Mia has been at the forefront of the environmental justice movement. Through her organizing in Asian American communities, she builds power that fights for healthy communities and a healthier planet. Let's get into it. When did you first become an organizer? Ah, right. That great question. (laughs) I think back to what I was like as a kid as being really important. And I think one of the things um, was that I I think I felt pretty powerless as a kid because I was bullied a lot. But especially when my family moved to this very white suburb of Detroit in like the early 1980s. And my dad was an immigrant from Japan there was at this time a really bad recession and you know the auto industry in Michigan had these really massive job losses and this was at the same time that people were also taking sledgehammers to Japanese cars because they were being told Japanese people were taking their jobs and at this same time there's also the murder of Vincent Chin who was this Chinese American who was basically beaten to death a few towns over from where we lived, specifically because they thought he was Japanese. Hmm. And um, my family never really talked about it, but it was really scary. And it kind of also added to this anxiety about, you know, being singled out and being bullied in in a real othering kind of way. And, you know, some people can react to that situation and I think be trained to put their head down and kind of try to be unnoticed. And I think I went a little bit the opposite way where (laughs) like that just made me really, really angry as a kid. And when I was in high school, this was also like during the late stages of apartheid, there were these incredible pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square. You know, and I kind of took that feeling inside of me. And I wanted to be in the streets. You know, I thought that what I wanted to do was be an activist. Um, I had no idea what that meant or how I just knew I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. I wanted some way to like express this rage I had about how unfair the world was and I thought being an activist was what that meant. But I think the first time that I knew what I really wanted was to become this thing that we now call being an organizer was when I was in college and I went to my first organizing training. It was a Midwest Academy training. Mm. And this was the first time I heard the real story, the organizing story about Rosa Parks. Mm. Mm. and. I I learned 
you know, about organizing strategy for the first time and kind of like named that there is such a thing as strategy, that right. it can be purposeful, can be intentional, <laughs> that there's actual skill to it, that it can be learned and shared and replicated and, and that there are actually tools and technologies <laughs> that can help us with it. And this was just a huge revelation to me. And it also made me pretty angry that the real story about Rosa Parks wasn't about this random act of courage by one person, like we're all taught at school, but it's a story of organizing. It's a story of collective action, of diversity of tactics. It was the deep kind of preparation and work and relationship building and strategic thinking that went into that moment and all the tests and innovations on that mm -hmm. organizing moment that went into it you know i was angry because i couldn't understand why that was removed from history and it seems really intentional that this myth of the individual is so powerful and so pervasive and i think we still really struggle with it today you know that it made us as a country like invisibilize the real story about rosa parks which is a story about the power of organizing and i think you know when i went to that training that was the first time that something clicked in me that like oh this is actually something that is like a science and an art that I can learn <laughs> that we can put intention into this and I'm not on my own. I'm part of this legacy, this long history of social change and like a strategy in building power in our communities. And it made me realize that, you know, this is, this is not about the, just these moments of individual like i'm fed up and i'm just gonna do something about it this is about building real deep connections and power that go on for years and years and when i learned that that kind of tapped into something in me that it was it was so amazing like and it, i still feel it today like <laughs> that this is something that i was always meant to do you know, it's something that it, it, mm. it put a real name on the feelings that I'd had about not just why the world is unfair, but what we can actually do about it. I think it is amazing. Probably everybody has their story of that moment where there is a kind of a methodology around all of this versus, you know, stuff's horrible and we got to figure out how to change it. There's actually stuff that works. Yeah. What happens next? Well, actually, one of the first insights into organizing I had was when I was in high school. One of my first jobs was being a canvasser for Greenpeace in, in the Chicago area. I would think I was 16. I was driven out to a lot of like working class suburbs in mm. Chicago, like, you know, Calumet or Cicero or Niles and Palatine, yeah. places where you would think that there'd be a lot of resistance to, you know, some tree hugger coming in from Greenpeace <laughs> to, to tell people about, you know, whales or something. But 
That was a really formative experience for me. I ended up being really successful on the doors. <laughs> I spent so much time, sometimes I would get critiqued for spending too much time at the doors, basically, because I would really listen to people. And I found that people were really willing to hear about what you think when you're actually interested in what they think. I mean, there's mm. just like some fundamentals to this. I would say like that was one of my first experiences of a, an actual methodological approach <laughs> to organizing. You know, it's like first rule, be curious. Um, mm -hmm. Don't make assumptions about people. Always start out by asking people to tell their stories. You know, no matter what it is, um, you want to hear from people about what they think and about what they care about. And I think that has been one of those inherently built in things into my understanding of what works in organizing. Since then, I didn't even know that I was doing anything related to <laughs> <laughs> organizing. It was really just just my summer job. But I feel like that was actually some of the hardest work I ever had mm -hmm. to do. And it was actually some of the most important learning for me. I feel like you just described some early deep canvassing. I mean, exactly. <laughs> listening, curiosity, you know, kind of non-judgmental, and then the, the fact that you were going longer than your supervisors thought you were. I was like, this is a, yes. Something you said around, you know, it is like a formative organizing experience. Like there is something about asking people to part with their money. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, it sounds like more working class folks. How do you think that prepares an organizer for later asking people to do other things and build an organization? I think that one of the biggest lessons about organizing that I have is that sometimes organizers get in the way of where communities and members actually are or want to be. We want to protect them so we don't ask. You know, we, we say, oh, you know, this is a poor neighborhood. People don't have any money. So we make these assumptions that they're not able to or shouldn't. And it's not just about money, you know, it's also about people's time and, you know, asking people to show up for public testimony, for a rally, for a phone bank, all, all kinds of things. And, and I think it goes all the way to, as organizers, what goes into our thinking about, you know, when we're crafting demands too. Many times, you know, our, our members are like, no, 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 we don't want to settle for that. We want, mm -hmm. <laughs> we want the big thing and we're not going to settle for the compromise. We want, you know, we want Chevron to shut down, <laughs> you know, or, right. or whatever it is. They're always asking for the big thing. And I think, you know, as organizers, we have to learn how to get out of the way of our communities and our members' own ambitions. And if we don't actually really listen to what our members are asking for and what, what their dreams are, then, you know, we can actually become a roadblock to those. What's 
like what do you think's underneath that kind of tendency to become a roadblock with like the human impulse that organizers sometimes will pick up that'll block space for leaders? You know, I think that some of that has to do with even some of the old organizer teachings, you know, this sort of idea that an organizer is not really part of the community, but is sort of some kind of unbiased mm-hmm. outsider. We have this idea that we're unrelated to it or that, you know, all we're doing is listening. Not to say that, you know, like listening deeply is important. That's fundamental. But that's not all you're there to do. And I think there's some idea that we are not actually part of making the change. We're just mm. facilitating change. You know, that that's just not how it works. Organizers have to think of themselves as leaders too. Yeah. And and it's more it's harder, you know, it's more complicated to actually be deeply engaged in a way that recognizes not just the authenticity of our leaders and our members, um, but our own as well and our own authentic voice in that. Yeah. I I hear you saying like as organizers we are weather vanes. We need to know listen to our people, know what they care about, want. And we're more than that. We actually have to have an opinion. And, you know, we're, we're not just facilitators. Yeah. Um, it's so important for us not just to have an opinion, but to be transparent about it. Right. Because we always have opinions and you're always going to have an influence. But if you're acting like you don't, then I think that's really, that's disingenuous. Um, I think we should be as transparent as possible about what we think as well. And knowing that, um, you know, our engagement with our members has an impact. What is the Student Environmental Action Coalition and how did you become so involved in like any kind of searing takeaways from that time as an organizer? Oh, so many <laughs> searing <laughs> takeaways. Um, I was on the University of Illinois campus. And I was really compelled to find a home, like a political home for some of the things I really cared about. And at that time, I cared about environmental justice and this intersection of environment, of poverty, of racism and pollution. And I just didn't find anything on my campus that was speaking to that you know there was an environmental group it was mostly engaged in recycling and you know other forms of sort of more conservation stuff and then this uh national group kind of appeared on the scene called the student environmental action coalition they had a huge conference on my campus it was called catalyst and it was the first time that I actually saw people who were not just excited about environmental issues, but from the perspective of social justice and from the perspective of really addressing inequality. And I got involved through this sort of new part of the network that was the People of Color Caucus. And it was small, small but mighty. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there was just a group of us that were really trying to challenge this mostly white 
student organization to address issues of environmental justice on their campuses. I started to get involved with that group and then very quickly got sucked into <laughs> all kinds of leadership positions and ended up leaving campus before I actually finished my undergrad and moved to North Carolina to be essentially the executive director of this national student organization. I had absolutely no business doing this. I had never, never run an organization, nor had I ever been responsible for raising a budget at the time, I think was like maybe a million dollar budget, which feels crazy to me that they hired me to do that. <laughs> but so it was, it was a really fast and pretty deep dive into national organizing. But yeah, so the, it was out of this desire to take a position where I could bring the perspective of the people of color who are in the organization. And in that moment, there is just, just like there is today, you know, there's this intense need to build power around these issues. And I was lucky enough because of my role and seek to be able to attend the first national people of color environmental leadership summit. And because I was also a young person, Asian American, and also from the Midwest, I fit some demographic categories <laughs> that they were looking for to participate in the really seminal document, The Principles of Environmental Justice. So there had been a draft that was brought to the summit. And then over several days of the summit, there were, I don't know, maybe like 20 of us or so, like locked in a room for half the time where we were actually just talking through and trying to edit and add to and argue over what the principles should be that were coming out of the summit. And there's still 17 principles of environmental justice out there today that came from that room and from the experiences of all the very diverse people in that room. And that was a real seminal experience for me also as a young organizer. I had no idea like how important that was gonna be as a, a moment an origin moment for me as an organizer and for my personal trajectory in organizing in, around environmental justice. Any big lessons from how a summit like that and like putting the time into principles like impacted your organizing later? Yeah, I mean that the principles of environmental justice, they say so much about the world that we want and I think that that, that um, was such a huge, huge contribution to this growing kind of nascent movement at the time that there was something to build off of, but something to also compare and contrast and say, these are the principles that we want to live up to. This is the bar that we are expecting us to all fight for and to, to rise above. And it, it's such a huge contribution, I think, to, to actually put into words what those are, even if, you know, the words aren't perfect or the, you know, I might go back and 
shift around, you know, some of the wording or maybe add some things now, but it's a huge, huge foundation of the environmental justice movement to have those principles put into words and say, like, this is what we're fighting for. You know, it's not just about the rage that we feel because of the inequity. This is not just describing injustice. This is describing what we want. You know, this Mm -hmm. is what we're fighting for. And I think in any of our movements, having something that articulates what we are fighting for, what we're building collective power for, what we want to see and then making meaning out of that, I I think is such a huge contribution. And the fact that I got to be a part of that in the early days of the environmental justice movement was, it was really a fluke and a coincidence, but it's something that has been such a fundamental part of what I then chose to do every day after um, that I never would have predicted that. I love that as a compass. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a very different kind of part of the organizing world where, I mean, we would spend a little bit of time on like some North Stars and things we want to, you know, the world we want to live in, but not enough. We we were better at like, what is the immediate fight where we can win and then get to the next level. And so it's just inspiring to hear about something, especially something that's had such staying power and inform so many people like way more than than we'll ever know what like share what a pen is and then if you could like walk us through like a defining environmental justice fight you know in the a pen history sure a pen the asian pacific environmental network we are a grassroots environmental justice organization based in the bay area We really started as an idea that in part was born out of the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. There were Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who were at the summit. There were only a handful of us. There was just so few of us that that was actually one of the striking stories for me was, oh, you know, I know that there are Asian American immigrant communities that are dealing with this same set of issues, the same intersection of living near big polluters, whether that is, you know, living next to a refinery, like our first organizing project in Richmond, in the Laotian community, or, you know, it's workers being exposed on a job or sweatshop workers or home care workers who are being exploited. I know that our communities are facing a lot of these same issues. Why are we not here? You know, Mm. where are our folks? (laughs) And so APEN was really born out of the recognition that we needed more organizations that were building power around environmental justice in Asian American immigrant and refugee communities. Our first campaign, we had gone along um, doing some early, like just sort of community education around environmental issues, just trying to like gauge where the interest was and what people were thinking and what were the most important issues to them and also build some community awareness around environmental justice issues that are facing people in that community. 
And then all of a sudden, uh, the Chevron refinery exploded, which it tends to do mm. from time to time, <laughs> pretty regularly. And at that time, this is, I believe it was like 1998, and the refinery had a, a huge explosion and fire and sent tens of thousands of people, essentially, like maybe it was 15,000 people to area hospitals because of the toxic exposure in the air. And one of the things that happened immediately was we were hearing from our members that they we're getting phone calls from the county with instructions, emergency instructions about what to do, and they couldn't understand it. They were hearing the sirens, they were seeing the smoke in the air, and because they wanted to know what was going on, they were basically doing the opposite of what the instructions were telling them. So there's this whole emergency warning system run by the county that was telling them to go inside, close their doors, put a towel, you know, to cover the crack in the door and close all your windows. It's basically instructions to shelter in place. Mm -hmm. And the Laotian refugee community was doing the opposite. They were going outside. They were trying to talk to their neighbors to find out what was going on. Instead of sheltering in place, they were exposing themselves more. And when we were hearing from people like the after effects of that and how many people got sick and how many people immediately felt the impact. And then we're also, you know, really upset by the fact that they were completely left out of this like vital information. And so our, our first campaign was around a multilingual warning system you know, it, it was not a transformative, you know, it's not like we were shutting the refinery down or something, but, but we were saying, this is fundamentally unfair and unsafe. And it's not just the Laotian refugee community. It's, it's all of the communities in Richmond who don't speak English as their first language. And what we need is a county government that's going to be accountable to all people and the care about the safety and the well-being and the health of all of the residents. And we fought for and won the first multilingual warning system in the country. That was our first wow. campaign um, that really started the organizing in Richmond and, and what was originally called the Laotian Organizing Project. Oh, I didn't know that part. Um, but it's like the people needed a multilingual warning system. It's yeah, like you said, it's not the transformative demand, but if you can win what people need, it's kind of hard to pull a lot of folks into the bigger, longer term fight. It reminds me of my first organizing in Southern Indiana and we'd kind of started to build on a big, you know, affordable housing campaign to get a bunch of units built and be affordable into perpetuity. But as we talked, you know, what was the emerging base, the homeless folks were like, really what we need to be able to do is sleep on the bench at the bus stop and not right. get ticketed. So like, let's win that first. And then we'll talk about this housing trust fund campaign. So, yeah. And I think that that is a really, you know, as long as we're talking fundamentals of organizing, winning, is important. <laughs> Winning is good. <laughs> we we need to win things. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think 
that's like one of those super obvious, but oftentimes disregarded <laughs> fact of nature in organizing and like just how important it is and, and not just to win anything, but win mm -hmm. things that bring a better quality of life, you know, that actually address real problems that people are experiencing on a day-to-day -day level, but probably most importantly, that help us build power and help set us up for more transformative demands and campaigns and wins in the future. You know, so I, I do think we're not talking about just going from stop sign to stop sign to stop no. sign. We're talking about campaign wins that set us up for the bigger wins and not just incrementally, but exponentially build our power. I'm curious, how has winning made it possible for APEN to have conversations and build a base that's aligned around a very transformative agenda for the energy sector? Um, yeah, like what role has winning played in allowing you guys to build that base? Well, I think that something that came out of that early campaign, which is fundamental to organizing, in my mind, is understanding power, like being able to engage members in this collective process of building their own power, recognizing their own power, winning something because of that power, and then kind of proving something that a lot of people don't believe is that they do have power when they take collective action. Mm -hmm. And that fundamental foundation of organizing i think you know there's just no shortcuts to that and and what that enabled us to do was to have you know tangible results that then actually create a new story in the community that we are not powerless that we mm -hmm. actually are powerful and that we can win things that are meaningful to us and we can actually then dream about bigger and bolder and more transformative things that are not just what our communities need now to survive, but are part of what we need to thrive and to build something that is, you know, not just better, but, but beautiful. And I, th I think that those like simple truths about mm -hmm organizing are so essential and there's definitely ways that you can do organizing that don't do that <laughs> you mm -hmm. know there's there's nothing sort of magical about organizing itself but but it's the way that you do it and i think in this mm -hmm. moment where we're just called upon um you know hearing people call it the power and the peril of the moment mm -hmm. there that there is so much at stake but if we don't have a massive number of people who actually believe that something transformational is possible, then we will never get there. You know, we won't win that, but that's what part of organizing. It makes the impossible seem possible. You know, it, it, it makes people actually mm -hmm. believe that that change is possible. And I think that you cannot underestimate the power of that. 
It's interesting. An organizer recently said to me who was kind of talking about how their organization has grown to some extent through the kind of movement energy of the last 10 years. The challenge they've run into is a lot of people that came in maybe a little through kind of, you know, very peaked movement moments thought the change was going to come faster Mm. and actually in many ways didn't get the experience of winning. They got the experience of getting big, um, but actually kind of skipped the experience of, you know, winning the thing in the neighborhood or winning the new city ordinance or all of that. And then a lot of those folks went away. They weren't Mm -hmm. actually their faith wasn't built or they weren't, they didn't come in ready for that kind of fight. And I hadn't heard it said like that, but I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I think that is really insightful. And that is part of this whole idea that there are no shortcuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no shortcuts. That organizing is just a essential pathway to winning what we need. And yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways to get people's attention and to agitate people and to get people angry about stuff, to even to get people to do something that they wouldn't have thought of themselves as doing before, mm-hmm. whether that's voting for the first time or, you know, signing a petition or, you know, but organizing is the process of taking people through like multiple channels of that experience and experiencing a win or even like, you know, when we shoot for things that are really big and we don't win them, that is n- not what I'm talking about. I'm like saying mm-hmm. that we everything that we choose to do. And I think that's part of this moment too. Like so much of what we're choosing is way more ambitious, is way more visionary and way more innovative. And we're like swinging, <laughs> you yeah. know, swinging for the rooftops here. We're, we're really, I think, going for it. And I think that being a part of that is is important too but i also think that as organizers you know we do have to be creative about how we engage people in the things that are immediate as well like there that's part of what the art and science of organizing is you know there's mm-hmm. we can't just do one or the other we can't just choose to only focus on the things that are winnable but that aren't impactful. But I I think for to leave people with the one experience being that, you know, they were part of something big that never went anywhere is really disempowering. Yeah, if that's the only experience. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier, you talked about people who've been made to feel and, and maybe even be invisible in our society, like, what organizing fundamentals are key to organizing? you know, folks who are, who are made to be invisible. I always think of myself as an organizer, as really my job is, is to knock down barriers and to clear the path for frontline communities and leaders to have their voices heard. In, in communities like the Laotian refugee community that we've been organizing in for years, or the Chinese immigrant community in Oakland Chinatown, where we've also built up an organizing base. There are some literal parts of organizing so that people feel heard, and that is like some of the technical things of 
having interpretation, making sure that people mm-hmm. can actually speak for themselves, you know, talk to the media and not have to always have the English speaking spokesperson, but actually having our members represent their own views and, and tell their own stories. You know, that I think is some of the expertise that we've built up around our organizing in making sure that people who normally don't have a voice, like literally have the capacity to communicate what they want and what their demands are. I love that. Last question. you have a favorite organizing axiom? Oh my gosh. It's been in my mind so long that I, I don't actually even remember where it came from, but it, it says that organizing is not so much about lighting a fire under as it is about lighting a fire within. Hmm. And it's probably been co-opted into like some like management training for executives or something, <laughs> of course. but it always really spoke to me as especially as a younger organizer to understand the difference between agitating people and building off of that, that rage, you know, that yes, that is important, but what you're really trying to do is light a fire of possibility, optimism and love inside of people. And that's what organizing actually does. It connects people to a bigger dream and a collective shared dream. And I I think it's so important for us as organizers to remember that we're not just here to make people outraged and mad. We're, We're also here to inspire people to be their best selves and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Hmm. So good, Mia. So glad you're up for doing this. Oh, it was such a huge pleasure. You know, we joke about when organizers used to work on stop sign issues, and there is a reason we did it. It provided quick evidence that coming together actually works. We don't need to go back to stop signs, but we do need organizers who know how to win. Winning is essential because people need relief in the here and now. And it gives people a taste of what organizing makes possible. But as Mia points out, there's even more to it than that. We actually build power through winning. We recruit new members and those members develop into leaders. We learn what it takes to win, to develop a power analysis, to do strategy and how to execute on that strategy. All of which means we fight the next battle on stronger footing. I experience today's organizing field to be much stronger at crafting truly structural and even transformative demands, but to be at a bit of a loss in constructing the stepping stone fights that get us there. When is winning something that's in perfect settling? And when is it a stepping stone in policy and in power that makes the more structural wins more achievable? We need to get clear on which is which. Mia also has me thinking about this balance that an organizer needs to strike in our relationship with members being someone who truly listens and trusts the instinct of members and is also active in shaping what we do and how we get there and open and honest about that role. We also discuss this tendency in some organizers to quote unquote protect people. When does our act of protecting people cross a line? When we decide for a community that they cannot afford dues, we rob people of an opportunity to make those decisions for themselves. And when is this really about protecting ourselves? Because ultimately, We're uncomfortable asking people for their time and money. 
It's complicated. The bottom line is this. We have to trust people's ability to lead, to take on work, to grow. And we have to trust that they need and want our opinion and are capable of pushing back or proposing alternatives if they're not feeling it. It's a delicate balance, but if we're mindful of this, mindful of where we're taking up too much space, when we're receding too far into the background, when we're protecting people from opportunities for growth, we'll find our way. You can learn more about the work that Mia is doing at APEN at peoplesaction.org slash nextmood. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now. <laughs>